They said you spent a few years living on the Navajo reservation. And I think that really changed my outlook on how I feel about people in general. And I would say it's probably a big driver in what I do on the claim side too. Welcome to The Defense Never Rests with Morgan and Akins, your monthly dose of uncommon sense about all things legal and some that are not. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this episode of The Defense Never Rests. I have on this week, uh, Greg Hamlin, who he is a senior VP of claims at Berkeley Industrial Comp, uh, but he also has his own podcast, Adjusted. And we connected a few weeks ago and just, you know, we're swapping, you know, stories about podcasts and things. So I thought it'd be great to have him on and uh, you know, talk about his journey to starting his podcast. And he's just an overall great guy. So having said that, I'll just bring him in. Good afternoon, Greg. Welcome to this episode of the Defense Never Rest. I'm so happy to have you come on. I'm so glad to be here. And we're going to get more into this later. But for our listeners, you have your own podcast. So this is a little change of the tables for you that you're on the the receiving end of all the questions versus being the the questioner. <laughs> I'm enjoying it. I'm going to sit back and relax and, and let you do all the heavy lifting. Yeah, no preparation for you today. That's right. <laughs> so uh, for, for our listeners, you are um, the senior VP of claims at Berkeley Industrial Comp. Now, you, which you had, you, you and I were just talking about it, your division handles like large, you know, high exposure comp claims. That's right. Yeah, we focus on, so our, our roots, we used to be called American Mining. So for folks who don't know uh, who we are, we changed our name over time because we used to do a lot of coal mining uh, back in the day. So uh, we had a very big presence uh, out West and in the Appalachia area uh, because that's where most of the coal mines were. Uh, but about five years ago, we changed our name and we refocused on high hazard workers' compensation insurance. So we focus on a lot of the same types of things, but if it, it can't have the coal mining federal black lung exposure for us to take a look at it mm -hmm. anymore because those laws have changed so much um, that it's challenging to, to really do business and, and write that. So we kind of, we pivoted over the last few years. And so how did you even get into claims? Was this, was this your career, you know, goal of life? No. <laughs> to, so to be sitting where you are today. No, it's a funny story. So I, um, so I'd spent two years out West on the Navajo at reservation after high school. And when I came back from that, I knew I wanted to do business. I went to Indiana university, uh, with the goal to join, to enter the Kelly school of business, which is one of the top business schools. Uh, I took the business classes, had straight A's my first semester, got to the second semester, started taking accounting and financials and all of the classes I need to, uh, to enter the Kelly School of Business, and it was not clicking. And I literally withdrew from college, reset, and realized that I love criminal justice, became a criminal justice major. And while I was doing that, I was doing fundraising for the university, doing non-for-profit work, um, raising scholarship money for students. And I did so well as a caller, they made me a student manager. And eventually I was running the call center while I was going to school. And I thought that's where I'd stay would be non-for-profit because I loved it. Uh, but I had a meeting with the director at Indiana University. And he said, I asked him like, what do I do to further my career here? And he said, you know, you should just take the same skill and go back to into business. And he said, I know you have a criminal justice degree, but your experience here is going to take you to the next level. And so I went to a career fair and met Liberty Mutual, knew nothing about claims, uh, entered their program, and that was the start. Wow. 
And I want to back up though for a second. They said you spent a few years living on the Navajo reservation. Tell, tell I, me a little bit about that. <laughs> I did. So after high school, one of the, my goals was to um, be a missionary and I was assigned to uh, the Four Corners area and I spent two years out there serving. So I've done everything from cook at a bear dance to teach children to um, clean up uh, to um, just really love people. And I think that really changed my outlook on how I feel about people in general. And I, and I would say it's probably a big driver in what I do on the claim side too, because I, I learned a lot about having respect for other people's cultures, beliefs, way of life. And it helped me, I think, know a little bit about who I was in that process. What, what an amazing experience too. And especially to do it, I mean, you were probably 18 at the time, I was, right? I was 19, I was young, <laughs> very young. That's, but that's so cool. And, and, you know, to, to take it from there and to, to go to business school or, and realize, okay, this might not be my thing, um, but then pivot, pivot back. <laughs> that's, yeah. And that's you know, awesome. it's funny. I was reading a, a journal I wrote while I was in college around that time. And it was talking about like how financials and numbers and all these things were, uh, were like a whole nother language. And I, I'd wrote something like, give me Gandhi in a cafe for 15 minutes and <laughs> And so I totally decided I wanted to do this like college of arts and science thing and, and pivot away from it. But what I've learned over all of the time that I've been in business now, you know, it was funny reflecting on that, realizing I look at that stuff every day and it's part of what I understand. And I think what I've learned is, you know, what you, what you stick to gets easier over time and you just yes. have to be persistent and be patient. And I'm grateful for those other experiences because I think it gives me a different lens that I look at things in the space that I'm in now that I understand that piece. Yeah, and I, I absolutely agree with that because I remember in, in college, I was actually a science major and um, I, had to take, I was pre-med, so you have to take organic chemistry. And, you know, the, the, how those classes are set up is no one gets an A. I mean, the average right. score is like a 32 or something. Right, right. <laughs> and at the beginning, you're so discouraged. And then, you know, then it all kind of, once you stick with it, it kind of all clicked together and, you know, and it just makes sense. And then I grew to love it, which is also odd in itself, but <laughs> I, I just, it clicked because I, you know, after a while, I just got used to it. That's really what it was for me. And the more, I think what helped me is the more I saw the practical application of what I was learning and what I was doing, mm -hmm. the easier it was to grasp and get my arms around. And then I realized that how those things connect. And, and once you understand the connections, then it all starts to make sense. Um, yeah. But I didn't lose the other experiences I had, which is great. So that stuff, sure. if I just had a business background, I would have missed out on so many different things that have helped me in claims you know, all those criminal justice classes really helped on the investigation side. So, yeah. And you come in as a, a more well-rounded person. I mean, if you were to compare, you know, you on paper versus, you know, Joe Schmo coming, just graduate in college, you have a much wholer experience because not only did you do the, the missionary work, you know, but you kind of, you really guided yourself to find, do something that you really love. So, um, absolutely. Yeah, I think it's, I think there's something to be said that, you know, it's okay to pivot your plan and you don't have to do what you said you were going to do when you're 16 going to college. Like, <laughs> That's right. It's okay. That's right. That's right. That's right. Had, had I not pivoted my plan, I would be a, you know, a, either a doctor or, a, you know, a scientist right now. And I knew it wasn't the plan for me. <laughs> exactly. So how, how did you end up at 
Berkeley? That's a good question. So I stayed with Liberty for, huh? I was almost with them for 10 years. So I started in National Market Workers Comp, which is the really big accounts at Liberty Mutual Rights, like UPS, Home Depot, like nationwide companies that anybody would know. And they're really well run. So I gained incredible experience doing that and was probably a little too ambitious. There was an opportunity uh, for a supervisor position in Cincinnati uh, with Liberty uh, when they had bought Ohio Casualty. And I asked, we were living in Indianapolis at the time, and I asked my wife, um, what do you think about applying to this? And she was like, oh yeah, go for it. Uh, <laughs> assuming that I wouldn't get it because I'd only been an adjuster for six years. She, she's like, yeah, it'll be good experience. We'll get good feedback. And I drove down there and then I came back and I got the job. And she was like, well, we're not moving. I said, well, you said go do this. <laughs> she was like, oh, and, I never thought this was going to happen. <laughs> that's exactly right. So uh, I don't know. I mean, we're still married. So I guess she agreed to it, but we were in Cincinnati and uh, I ran a work comp team there and uh, the company went through reorganization around that same time and they gave me commercial liability, which I had not ever learned. And so I remember um, my first day as a manager, they gave me some online trainings on commercial liability and was like, here you go. Um, and so those first few months when I was auditing my team, I literally had them sit with me. So I made sure that I treated them fairly on that. And I, so I had a split team, half work comp, half liability and uh, did that for a couple of years in Cincinnati and had the opportunity to come through a recruiter to uh, eventually be the director of claims for the state, the state fund in Kentucky. And it was an exciting opportunity to go back to claims because that's really where my heart was. Yeah. Um, and so that led me to that opportunity, uh, which eventually led to the position I'm in now as a, a senior vice president for Berkeley Industrial Comp. Yeah. So it's, it's so nice. I find anytime I talk with anyone in claims, which is quite frequently, um, everyone has a, a, a real good passion for what they, they do. And it's a common theme I have that uh, through any of the guests coming on that they want to people to understand, like even, you know, graduates coming out of college that claims is not boring. Insurance is not boring. Um, and to really encourage people to get into these fields, because not only is the growth potential huge, but, you know, no day is the same. Every claim is extremely different. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. And in that in itself makes it very interesting because you never know what's going to come across your desk at any point. That's it. That's absolutely right. I, I tell people I can't think of a single day that I've looked at the clock and wondered what time it was. You know, and part <laughs> of that is there's always so many moving pieces and every claim is so different. It's like a puzzle. And, you know, sometimes you have to wear your... Uh, medical hat and, and be able to read medical reports and understand what's going on so that you can make decisions on that. Other times you're wearing your legal hat because you have to understand how the law applies to what it is you're trying to do. And then other times you're wearing your, your criminal justice investigative and hat because right. something doesn't smell right. And, and yet other times you're doing the financial piece of trying to make sure, well, do I have enough financials on this and what's it gonna cost and how does that work and how do I pay for these bills? So for me, that's what I really enjoyed is the variety and all of the different moving pieces that, that keep things interesting. So how do you think we can go about getting, you know, I, I've had this conversation about getting the word out there, so to speak, that this is, you know, this is a really good career path and, you know, and it engages so many parts of your mind. I think, you know, one of the biggest challenges I've seen, and I think we're, maybe we've failed 
as a insurance industry is the kids that are graduating today want meaning and purpose in their life and their career. And I don't think we always explain how what we're doing provides that. Right. And if we fail to do that, we're missing a piece that's really important. And, and I feel real, very passionately that that's what we do, especially on our side is we're helping people get back to work and continue on with their life and heal and move forward. And we're making sure companies have the resources they need so that they can operate and do the businesses that, that bring them success. So it's, it's there, but I don't think we articulate that well. And I think we've got to keep doing that. Yeah. And I, I think a lot of what happens too, is it's almost humanizing the face of insurance companies that they're not Mm -hmm. against you. They're there to help you, whether it be for in comp cases or even, you know, general liability cases that, you know, the the insurance company is not necessarily against that plaintiff. We just have to figure out, you know, what really happened and what, you know, how much is owed to this plaintiff, you know, (laughs) like to put it so simply, but it's, it's not like, you know, the big, bad insurance company against this tiny little helpless plaintiff. I don't, and I haven't talked to anyone yet, any, you know, VP of claims, claims adjuster, anyone who feels that way, you know, everyone just wants to figure out the right amount. That's exactly right. And, you know, I think if that's the guiding principle is do right, then the other stuff falls into place. And, um, but there's a strong narrative because there's plenty of commercial dollars spent on advertising. If you've been hurt in an injury and here's the evil <laughs> insurance company and, you know, we're not doing that on their side. We're not putting those same commercials out there. And I can tell you like when my wife tries to explain to people what I do, they never can understand because when they think insurance, they think sales and yes. I don't sell anything. I haven't <laughs> sold anything my whole career. So, um, I mean, I'm there for the underwriting department and I explain our services and what we can do that's different than the competition. But uh, I don't think most people even really understand that there is workers comp or how it works or that there are people who do what we do. Oh, for sure. And it's funny that you mentioned um, that how insurance companies are portrayed around here. There's a certain plaintiff's firm that has billboards up that says like, we eat insurance companies for breakfast. (laughs) Sure. Yeah. (laughs) And what's so hard is, you know, and there are times, there are times when I think um, an injured worker getting an attorney makes a lot, getting an attorney makes a lot of sense. And sometimes it really helps move the case forward. So I know there's a place for it, but it's really difficult when sometimes you see situations where you think, man, everything was going so well and we had a great relationship and the only thing that's going to change is how much money you get because they're getting a part of that because right. of the way this it's so statutory how it's set up. Right. Um, right. And it's not always that way, but um, you know, I've had several times where I've had injured workers call me and it's like, well, you can't call me anymore. And they're like, mm-hmm. well, why not? And I said, well, you have to go through them. And right. that's frustrating for them. And they didn't realize that when they were making that decision, but um, you know, not everybody there, there's, there's a time and place for everything. And, and there definitely is a role there, but it's hard when you sort of start out feeling like you're villainized before you've even begun. Yeah. Oh, for sure. And, and you also don't know what's getting once, once they've retained counsel, you don't, you don't obviously don't know what they're being told by their counsel, but you know, we can only presume it's a you know, oh, they're, they're just, they're just trying to be cheap or, you know, I'll get, I'll get it, you know? (laughs) Right. Right. And in reality, that person's in business too. (laughs) That's right. That's exactly right. And and not to say that they're, they're, I'm, I don't want to overarch that, you know, all, all, all the plaintiff's bar is out to, 
you know, <laughs> can take money. There are away, some but... fantastic ones. I'll tell you, yeah. there's some cases that we never would have resolved without the attorney that's on the other side. And those type of partnerships are great. I, I use the word partnership because it really is when you start negotiating and trying to sort out how to take care of somebody and make sure their needs are met. And you've got somebody that can really advocate and help them understand the process. Yes. It can be helpful. So there is a, definitely a place. And I always find too, at least from my standpoint, like if I am against a council that we get along and we, we understand, okay, we know where this case should be, you right. know, and we, we can work together to try our best to get there. I mean, there's no smoking gun. We're not, there's right. no tricks. Like, right. You know, we know, we know the, where it needs to go. We just have to kind of figure out how, how to get it there and get that client, his, his or her client there. And, you know, and work together. And that I always find you get, you get the best results for everybody when you have that type of relationship. Absolutely. Yeah. No Absolutely. good comes of fighting usually. I mean, no, it doesn't. <laughs> and you know, it's funny. And, and I, and I'm not going to pick on any one particular, you know, plaintiff attorney on this, but it seems like some of the really big ones that advertise really heavily, not all, but some of them, when you start dealing with them as a gesture, you feel like, Oh, well, this is so huge. It's like a machine. Like the, you know, like you're like, well, Sometimes the little mom and pop ones that you're dealing with, they know they're injured worker. They work with you. They call you on the phone. It's just, mm -hmm. they're very different. Everybody's yes. business is a little different that you're working with. Yeah. And, and navigating that is difficult too. I mean, that, I think that's also what comes into experience. Um, you know, like at the very beginning, your experience of how to deal with opposing counsel changes as you gain the experience of like, okay, like this, you know, you know, the players or, or you just know how to talk to people. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I, I want to talk a little bit or a lot about <laughs> your, sure. you have a podcast called Adjusted. I do. I do. And I, I love it. Um, so, but I want to hear about your process and how you got there. Like, did you wake up in the middle of the night being like, this is what I'm going to do? <laughs> <laughs> no. So, um, so first of all, I'll admit I'm a huge nerd. I love um, podcasts. I listen to, uh, you know, I'm really into hobby board gaming, which is about as nerdy as it gets. And if you want to hang out with people who do that, the easiest way to do it is you, you meet people through podcasts or online. So I'd listened to a lot before and our marketing team came to us and said, you know, we'd like to try this out. Would you be up for it? And I thought about it and I thought if we're going to do this, uh, I want it to be impactful. So for me, last summer, when we started talking about moving forward with this, I really wanted to connect people to some of the people that I see are changing the workers' compensation, compensation space for good. And there are a lot of great people who are doing really amazing things that nobody knows about. And so my hope on, in doing it was, one, to get our name out there, obviously. It's advertising for our company to... Um, kind of gives people a window in into what we're doing, but it also shows people who are really trying to make a difference. And that's what I wanted to do was to connect people who had the same vision that I have of, of changing the workers' compensation space a little bit. And so how do you go about finding your, your, your passionate and interesting people? <laughs> <laughs> that's great. So part of it is I've always, my whole career, I've always taken mental notes of people who I think are amazing. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, a group of them, you know, work with me now. And some of them I've worked with for years. Our, our senior adjuster who hasn't been on an episode, we were hired the same within three months of each other back in Indianapolis. And so some of these people that are on my team, we've worked together a long time. So some of the people you'll see featured are Berkeley Industrial 
comp employees that I know and I know where their heart is. And uh, so I love featuring them. But then I also have really looked at some of the people who have made an impact on a claim we've had. And when I see that happen, I think, okay, this person gets it. And so like we talked with Becky Curtis, who does Take Courage Pain Coaching. I had met and worked with her and I was really impressed with her story and her vision. And, and, and many of the others, it was very similar. We, we crossed paths in one way or another. And I thought this person's special. They're doing something really neat here. Yeah. And I mean, I, I know my, my process is, you know, I, I find, I find people, I connect with them on, on the phone and I, you know, say, Hey, we have a great conversation. Do you want to come on? It's maybe similar. Like I, I have an interesting conversation. So I'm like, Hey, I think other people want to have a conversation or hear a conversation with you. Um, and I kind of flow with that. It's more about the individual is, do you preface yours more on topics or individual? And the, and the topic is driven from the individual. That's a good question. I think I probably focus more on the individual. So yeah. I want to tell the story, but I'd like the story to be something I have it covered uh, if we can. So I'm like in season two, I can't even wait for a couple of the episodes we're, we're getting, we're working on right now. You know, one of them. So we, I met this individual at a, um, actually it was a team meeting and he spoke and his name's Timothy Alexander. He wrote a book. I think they're making a movie about him right now. Oh, really? And he is the first, uh, NCAA uh, scholarship student, uh, athletic scholarship student who is a paraplegic. And his story is amazing. Mm -hmm. And so he, while it's not work comp, what it does is it tells the story of what it's like to overcome a challenge. Mm -hmm. uh, he was being recruited for football for by Florida at the time, which when Tim Tebow was there. So a like real mm -hmm. division one athlete and uh, got in a car accident and a friend pulled him out of that car and was a paraplegic after that. And like, he had to go through all the steps of grieving and recovery and what's my new life going to look like. And eventually went, was going to UAB and in a wheelchair and decided I'm trying out for football. And it's like, well, how's that going to work? And the coach <laughs> said, everybody out in the field. And he said, I rolled out there on my wheelchair. And that was the beginning. And I think when I see individuals that have like that kind of heart and determination, it gives me courage and hope uh, and makes me want to do better. Yeah. And so like, I really try to find people who, when I listen to their story, it makes me want to be better at what I'm doing. Wow. I love that. Um, and I feel like that, that he, that story sounds very familiar to, to me. And now I'm, I'm very excited to listen, listen to He's, it when it gets he released. He is an amazing human being. So there's some, I think he did a Ted talk. So mm -hmm. if people are interested, they could check that out. And I know he wrote a book that I read, but I mean, just amazing story. When you see the amount of determination and courage that he had, um, this is amazing. When he did our team meeting, he actually did a, if you've ever done like those just dance on your Wii, you know, type things. He pulled one of those up on the PowerPoint with the music and everything and made everybody do it. And he was doing it as best he could in his wheelchair. But I was just thinking to myself, like, he has so much confidence and, and so much um, determination to live life to its fullest. And people like that, the world needs more people like that. That's yeah. for sure. So. Well, I'm already your, your guests are topping mine. I guess just by having you on here, then... <laughs> Yeah, you have to call I have my <laughs> Yeah, so we're doing. I think for season two, we're gonna um, talk to a, a person. His name's Mo Kenny, and he runs Kenny Orthopedics. Mm -hmm. And I met him when I lived in Kentucky, and he came and spoke. He 
he, when he was a child, was playing at his friend's house and somebody lost control of their car and ran him over and he lost his leg. And then he spent the rest of his life creating an ortho orthopedics orthotics company to create custom orthotics for people so they can walk again. And I mean, just what a yeah. cool story to have something like that awful happen and then spend the rest of your life helping people. So, and, and also it goes right to like what you do on a day-by-day -day basis. If you're trying to help your, your claimants in, the, in these high-risk uh, industries recover and get back to work, these, these are some of the stories that you, you want them to hear. Absolutely. Um, so is that, you know, what is, when you started thinking about this and putting it together, you know, who was your idea of your intended audience? You know, I'm still... Still trying to figure that out, but I, I think, you know, ideally, obviously people in claims and insurance, we want to reach them. We would love if our insured, some of our insureds would listen to this and, and employers. Uh, and I also think as a recruiting tool, people who aren't in the industry, I would love for them to hear this. Um, you know, I have a bigger idea I'm working on and, and we'll see where that ends up. But my team right now is we're still in the um, experimentation phase, but we are trying to put together a concept that we're calling empathetic claims resolution, mm -hmm. uh, which infuses a lot of the things that I do in the podcast, but with our injured workers. And, and our belief is one of the things the insurance companies haven't done a great job with is showing people that we actually care about their recovery. And yeah. we believe that if we show them that um, and we build trust with them and we work with them instead of against them, many times we believe we're going to get a better outcome. Now I have to prove it. So it's still in the <laughs> experimentation phase, but we're going to try things. We've already signed a contract to with a company so that when somebody has a surgery, we can send them uh, cookies in the mail here. You know, we're thinking about you. Uh, if they yeah. go back to work, we're trying to get a stack of cards on our adjuster's desk that uh, they can write handwritten cards to our injured workers uh, to let them know they're thinking about them. Yeah. So I think what I'm trying to do is take what these people are doing in the industry and really bring it into what we're doing. And I believe when we do that, we're going to have better results and, and not just in their recovery, but I also believe it will cost less in the long run if we care. So. I, and I, I definitely agree with that. I think, you know, the idea of empathy goes so much further than people realize. And I, I, I feel that sometimes, you know, the claimants or plaintiffs feel almost like, everyone's against them. I know you and I exactly. just touched on this and if they don't feel that, no, we're not against you. We actually want to help you and we care. Yep. Um, and, and I've had this discussion too, on, on the flip side too, with clients, um, that, you know, an accident may happen and, you know, the insured may not be liable, but they can still be empathetic to exactly. what that person's going through and show the empathy. It doesn't mean though that they're liable, but they can still feel empathy for them. And I think sometimes people just want to be heard. <laughs> I think that's, I think that's it. And I, you know, for me, like I can think of, so when my wife, you know, she had to have her gallbladder out and some people from work brought dinner over, like I talking about it still. Cause it's like, well, boy, I felt loved. I felt yeah. like, you know, people were thinking about her and I think there's little things we can do and they don't actually cost. It doesn't always cost a whole lot of money to care. And I think we can do a better job of that. And so that's one of the things that we're looking at trying to, to figure out how to do. And it even comes down to who we hire. So the last five years, I've really changed my paradigm on what I look for uh, to bring people into the industry. I hired a, a flight attendant uh, and you talk about handling high pressure situations mm -hmm. with difficult customers. She's yeah. wonderful at it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I can imagine. Great. Uh, we hired a, a, a 
customer service rep at Publix Grocery Store, which in the South is like known as the white glove experience for groceries. Mm -hmm. And he knows how to handle all those situations. So, and we're using these types of employees to train the rest of our staff to start to see, well, how can we do things a little different? Um, so I'm excited to see where it goes. It's, it's going to be a fun couple of years. And I think the podcast is the people we're trying to bring on. I'm trying to have that align with where we're trying to go overall yeah. to, to change things a little bit, do something different. And I, I love that, that angle too, as to looking out for new, new uh, team members to bring on because you don't need to have, or sometimes you don't need to have this strict background and claims to be good at what you do. Absolutely. You can teach somebody how to do this. And if they have these innate skills already to care, then they're already going to be good at that job. That's and they exactly just need to right. learn the systems and lingo and, you know, how to handle it, but they have the tools right there. And, and I found some of the folks that come from those other careers are actually excited to work in this space, mm -hmm. um, having had crazy hours and schedules that aren't normal and yeah. weekend nights and all of that. So our job's high stress for sure, but it's a more regular schedule. So, you know, yeah. when we hired the flight attendant, that was one of the things she appreciated was like, well, I'm actually home now. And, right. I'm, you know, able to, you know, do things with my parents and her now yeah. husband and, um, you know, my employee that I hired from, from Publix, uh, you know, it's hard when you have to work holidays and weekends and you yeah. want to visit your family that's in a different state. Well, he can do that now. So yeah. there's, yeah. there's a trade-off and I think that's been good for them and in, in work-life balance too. Yeah. And, and a sidebar about being a flight attendant, you know, I think as a kid, I always thought that was like the coolest job in the world. You get to travel all over the world, but you know, you don't really think about the, the drawbacks to it, that you are literally traveling all over the world and you probably don't get to really visit anywhere. <laughs> That's exactly right. Yeah. You see a lot of hotel rooms. <laughs> but as a kid, I was like, wow, like you really couldn't get cooler than that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> for sure. For sure. So it's been, it's been a fun journey as we've kind of reset, you know, uh, when I first started in management, I, I really continued to hire w the way I was hired, which is they went to, you know, top universities, recruit people with a three, five GPA that are right out of college that have business degrees, uh, sometimes criminal justice for claims. So that was the model. And I, and I think there's some value to that. You want some of those in your, on your team. Uh, but I found that mixing in some of the others really um, has made a big difference for us. Absolutely. I mean, and think about it too. I mean, so you could have someone in college who didn't find their way really until maybe the last two years, or maybe they had a family thing that came up. Like you don't know what the transcript does not tell you no, everything. It does not. And it's so hard because I, I understand there are metrics that some companies need to look at and to weed out people. But unfortunately by doing that, you weed out, you could weed out some really good candidates. I mean, I think the same happens even applying to college. You know, you could lose a diamond in the rough because you have certain automatic Ab standards. Absolutely. Also, my brother, I'll, I'll share this short story. So my brother, uh, it was always that tough kid, like in high school, everything was so easy. He never tried. <laughs> so he would get an A on the test and fail the class because he wouldn't do any of the homework. And my parents like couldn't, didn't know how to deal with them. And he barely graduated from high school. And then he's like, fine, I'm just going to do construction. So he was doing roofing, you know, all of the manual labor that uh, yeah. jobs. And then when the housing market crashed, there was no work yeah. and he couldn't find any work anywhere, ended up going back to school 
at uh, IUPUI in Indianapolis, like a you know, not quite community college, but uh, regional, and got a very high GPA when he went back and uh, then got accepted to law school at Harvard. And now he's a Harvard <laughs> grad attorney, right? So some people needed to take some chances on him. He had it all there, but it took him till he was 35 to get there. But yeah. I love, I love his story. Cause it just reminds me like, you know, everybody has a story and it can take time. And if you just jump to conclusions at the beginning of that story, yeah. then you may miss out on some really talented, amazing people. Oh, for sure. And, but I, I wasn't expecting that to be the end. I, I wasn't expecting Harvard, but that's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> and so he's like, a, he's in a, he worked for uh, Baker Botts for a while. And now he's an executive attorney in the oil industry and in, wow. uh, in Houston. But, you know, his journey from basically living in a very difficult part of Indianapolis where there was a lot of crime and he was basically on his last, last penny to kind of resetting himself, um, I think, you know, there, there are a lot of people who need second chances that are pretty amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And it also speaks to, again, hard work. I mean, he, he, yeah. he, the, he and learning, he learned that he has to do his homework. That's <laughs> he right. Just get an a on a it doesn't test. work like that. <laughs> like you can't just coast through life. That's right. That's right. At some point life will catch you. <laughs> yeah. so. Oh, I love it. Are you going to have him on? You need to have him on your podcast. I should sometime. He's a, he's a really, um, he's got a great story and he's been through a lot to get to where he is. And in fact, his goal, the whole time he was at IAPUI was just to, he was like, I want to do well enough that I get a scholarship to go to law school. And then at the end, he had been like intern of the year for the House of Representatives or the Senate in Indiana. And then he was thinking, well, maybe I could do a little more. So he's like, I'll try for Northwestern. That would be amazing. Like, that would be my dream. It's an incredible school. And he got in and he started going through the registration and he had applied to Harvard just kind of just to see. And why not? (laughs) Yeah. And then they, they called him back. I mean, it's his LSAT, of course, was crazy high because he yeah. had taken it over and over on his like practice tests on his own. I think he took it every day for a month on his own, wow. just like practice tests, not officially. Um, and because he wanted to get in, get that scholarship and he had a young family at the time. And uh, then he ended up making a wait list and they called him and he was like, do I do this? It's a ton of student loans. Do I want to yes. <laughs> you know, have over $100,000 in student loans? And uh he's like, well, it is sort of, I think he just decided it was a chance of a lifetime. So yeah. he did it. You kind of say yes to Harvard. I think you yeah, have right. to. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> There's just some, like, it's like Oxford, Harvard, the Yale, you, you say yes to them, like when they call. <laughs> so my favorite story. So while he's in law school and he was broke as a joke, he called me and he's like, my car doesn't work. I don't have anything. I'm like, well, I have this van that only starts on Wednesdays. So I'll, <laughs> I, you can have it if you can fix it, but I'm done trying to drive this around. And he took it and he's like, man, I'm so grateful. I'm like, don't worry. There'll come a day when I'm like asking you for a favor once you've graduated. <laughs> so right. so uh, I, I joke all the time. I said, 10 years from now, when you have a, a lake house, I'm calling you to go. Yes. Stay <laughs> Absolutely. Like so. for, for an extended period of time. <laughs> That's right. So, so um, I, I, I think the other week you, you put out a podcast about, um, uh, medical marijuana and, and it's in, in comp. And it was funny because I recently just recorded a podcast about like the next hot topics in, in comp and, you know, medical marijuana and drugs were a huge part of that discussion. Now, mm-hmm. do you agree with that, that that is just a, like a hot budding 
butting. <laughs> Excuse my it pun. It is. No, it, yeah, it is. <laughs> it is because it's, it's, it's an area that's still being mapped out. And it's really difficult when you have a federally illegal substance and states are authorizing it. Yeah. I mean, I know lots of insurance companies are concerned, well, if I do this, am I aiding and abetting a crime? Because this is federally right. illegal if I start paying for this. And right. then because it's not well regulated, how do I know what they're getting if it's actually helping them? Uh, conversely, if they're going to be on OxyContin and they're going to be on that for the next 20 years, maybe this is a good alternative. I don't. Right. So I think that's where everybody's trying to figure out, like, where does this fit? How do we do it legally? How do we regulate it? And, you know, and I think it's going to be a process for sure. Yeah. And, and I mean, like a, a process with some, probably some wrong turns to get it, Absolutely. to get it right. And we're probably already have part of the way there and, you know, on a wrong turn, but I mean, an area that I see is a difficulty in it is like, so if you, even if you have an employee who's working for you and they, they use medical marijuana for whatever issue they may use it for and and they get injured on the job or what if they're operating machinery or whatever and then 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 what is that employer looking at and i mean that's a problem See, and for us that's almost all of our employers because we yeah. write high hazard insurance right they all have to be drug tested almost all of our industries that we write are because they're dangerous jobs that involve either height exposure or machinery that if you're operating under the influence would be an issue so that's for us in particular, it's a real challenge uh, because of that. And, you know, I, I think it's going to be interesting to see how it develops. I think the one thing that stood out to me, I attended in Atlanta for about four years straight, the uh, uh, national uh, opioid, I can't remember the exact title, but it was in Atlanta every year. President Obama came and spoke one year, President mm -hmm. Clinton came, uh, and they had all the top thinkers there talking about the opioid crisis and how to handle it, how to address it heroin was involved too. And the thing that I was impressed when I went to one of these seminars that was on marijuana uh, was there are already states that are doing this. So one of the things that's going to be very helpful over the next five to 10 years is to see what the data says about what's happening there. And yeah. the point he was trying to advocate against is let's wait and see and get that information before we make decisions. Now, since then, tons of other states have changed that. So we're kind of in the wild west. Uh, <laughs> but it would be nice if we had the data. And, and it's so new still that yeah. we don't have as much information as we could have to make better decisions. Yeah. I, and I, I think that's where we're going to see too a lot of the wrong turns too, because you just we don't there's there's not the information isn't there yet um, for to make really good decisions and determinations of what should happen um, and what the, what the regulations and laws should be. <laughs> That's exactly right. Uh, um, it's, it's going to take time. And, and I think what I've learned as just as a human being is when I always just go with what feels right, sometimes it's not. <laughs> take a minute, look at the information and use that along with how you feel to make the decision. But um, there's just not a lot of that yet. Yeah. So, so what other, from you know, from your view as, you know, senior VP of claims and also from like talking to all your guests and everything on adjusted, like, what do you see as like some other hot topics in, in the world of comp? I think it's going to be interesting to see how COVID develops over time. Now we, because we write high hazard, most of our employees, like if you're a cell phone tower worker, you're up in a cell phone tower by yourself. 
You're there's distanced. Not a whole, yeah, there's not a whole a lot of social distance when you're up 100 feet in the air by yourself. So we haven't seen COVID claims. Now, some of our sister companies have, especially those that work in the medical industry uh, or our first line. Uh, and every state is reacting in different ways to that. Um, I haven't been as close to that because we haven't had the exposure on our side, but I know our sister companies have. And I think the world is going to react in the future very different when, I mean, if you think back to the swine flu, if you think mm -hmm. back to some of the other things that happened, they were in the media, but it wasn't like how this is being handled. Sure. And I have to wonder going forward, as we start to experience these in the future, are we going to see similar laws passed or ways that states handle this under workers' compensation? And how does underwriting make sure that they're reserved, like they're getting the funds for that when they're writing yeah. business? And then how do we handle it? Mm -hmm. uh, so I think that's a huge one that's very forefront right now. And I think it will reappear in different forms over the next 10 years. And what do you think about too, with, you know, companies requiring employees to get vaccinated? Um, and, and I could see that being, you know, that's a, a risk reward type decision for a company, but then some people have very strong views about being they vaccinated do. and they don't want to be vaccinated, um, or yet at least they want to see what the data is. Um, so I feel like that's also a fine, a fine line. It, it is. And I think there'll be a lot of employment law that works itself out over that, because <laughs> I, I do think there are people who, I think the one thing I've learned in the last few months is that how people feel about vaccination is not as straightforward as I thought. So when I, you know, as a manager of a department, it was pretty, I felt like, well, you know, people have been getting vaccinations for forever. This isn't, but it's actually, it is attached itself to some people's core value systems. And when you do that, when that happens, it's a lot more complicated to deal with than an idea. Uh, and so when you talk about people, how people feel about something versus, um, you know, an idea. And so I think that's going to be a challenge. I think we're going to have a lot of I think we're going to stumble our way through it over the next little bit, but it's certainly going to be something that's going to get tested by somebody. Yeah. And, um, you know, what I've told my staff is just be patient, be patient, <laughs> be patient. This will work itself out. Um, yeah. and it's going to unfold. And again, going back to empathy, you know, I think as leaders, we need to remember to be empathetic. Um, the, the, the last thing we want to do is lose amazing talent and people who are making a huge difference. So being patient and empathetic will go a long way as this continues to unfold itself. Yeah. And also, I think what one thing we've learned over the last year plus is that, you know, traditional work models don't, we don't have to adopt these traditional work models. So if someone is, you know, I'm speaking more from like an insurance company perspective or, or, an, or a company that can do it. But if you have the ability to allow some people to work from home and that those individuals may, don't feel comfortable getting vaccinated or whatever, there's other options that are available to your team that I think a year and a half ago, a lot of people were closed off to those being viable options. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And I think that's going to be another issue we're going to see that's going to be an emerging trend over the next year or two is yeah. what does work from home look like? You know, I'm really, you know, if you read the Wall Street Journal or some of the other business uh, newspapers, there's some companies that are pushing really hard to get everybody back. And there's some companies that are moving everything to remote. And 
I don't think we quite know how that's going to settle itself out, but I, I think it will. And I think we'll probably see some of both and we'll probably see some of both that decide one thing today that end up changing that over time. Yeah. So again, that's where I keep telling my folks, be patient as we go through this because it's a journey. And I think none of us really know what the new normal is going to look like. Um, and there's a lot of fear of what that will be like and, and what will happen because we've all come so far over the last year and a half. Yeah. Um, and frankly, I think everyone's just a little fatigued from the <laughs> last year and a half. So things, things that didn't make people upset before, or might've been a one out of 10, you know, when you don't have any room for, uh, for frustration, it, it's easy for things to spill over. And I think yeah. that's happening everywhere. Oh, and I think that's, that's such a good point too, is that, that, that also we are, everyone's so wanting to get past everything and get into back being normal that I think some people are forgetting, well, we're not quite there yet. We still have some more growing pains to, that need, need to happen. Um, and again, it's that patience, you know, it's things, things are going to work out and we're all going to get there. Um, we just got to, you know, see how it is. And it, it might even be things with offices that you have assigned times that you know, schedules of who comes in when to keep numbers down or whatever it may be. Um, but we just don't know yet. Yeah, that's exactly it. I think we don't. And I think it's going to develop over time and we'll see how it plays out. You know, obviously there's some collaboration that gets lost if people never are in the office. So yeah, there's, you know, I, I, I think it, a lot of this will, will work itself out. But I do think, like I use the example of a cup, if you fill it with a pitcher of water, you can keep pouring the whole pitcher into that cup, but it has nowhere to go. And I think that's kind of where people are at, you know, after a year and a half of this is everybody feels that fatigue where there's no space for it to go, which makes every topic a little bit more volatile than it would have been a year and a half ago. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so switching gears a little bit. So you, you, you've been doing this podcast for a few months and it hasn't, couldn't have all been you know, smooth sailing and, you know, <laughs> easy peasy. <laughs> so when you think back of it at, sitting here today, can you, you know, share some of your more embarrassing or surprising moments that you've experienced? So we've had a few somewhere. <laughs> I have a blooper reel of all the silly things that have gone wrong. And we've had a bunch of them. I mean, we had one that didn't record that we had to redo, which mm -hmm. anybody who's done this has probably had that happen. Yes. Um, we've had ones where like, there's been parts where like, oh, we can't use that. <laughs> we'll have to cut this <laughs> chunk out. Uh, and, you know, we've had ones that we've thought were lined up and then they fell through. And mm -hmm. so there's a lot of that. Um, there's been times that somebody has been talking and they've been on mute the whole time. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. Just little funny things like that. We're like, well, that didn't go how we hoped. Uh, but I feel like overall it's gone pretty well for us. Um, oh, so you're due for something really bad. Thanks. <laughs> Like, well, my sister was telling me like recently or not recently, I guess it was months ago that like she, her husband was on like a video call and she didn't know uh, he was on a video call and she came into their room, like in her bathrobe to get changed. And then like realizing that she did the thing that she slinked down on the floor, <laughs> shimmy <shimmy'd> over. <laughs> yeah. So I was doing everything in her basement for the longest time, but I guess I'm getting old. My knee wasn't appreciating going up and down the stairs <laughs> 10 times a day. So I moved my desk up to our room. So I, that's something I always have to be mindful of oh, yeah. now that it's upstairs. So, right. Um, so what, and I, I think I might have an idea of what 
your response to this is since you're so passionate about uh, what you do, but, you know, if you were to take away, you know, one thing from your job, like what is it that you love most about it? That's a good question. I think where what I find a lot of fulfillment in is bringing a team of people together who can grow and help other people and watching them grow through the process. So that really is what gets me up every day is Mm -hmm. the people I work with. And like I said earlier, some of these folks, we've worked together either at other companies uh, at other points in our life, and they truly are my friends. Uh, And so um, I think seeing them develop and grow and then seeing how they help other people is really what uh, I love. And of course, I want to be profitable doing that. Um, But going back to my non-for-profit roots, that's what woke me up uh, every morning when I worked for Indiana University was I felt like I was making a difference. I felt like every time we were able to raise a scholarship for a kid, if they could get educated and that education changed their life and gave them the tools and power to um, make things different in their own life and in their own corner of the world, then it, it meant something, it mattered. And so moving to profit for profit, I wondered, well, where will that space be? Well, I feel like it's missing. And I think it doesn't have to be missing. It can be if you don't choose it, but I've spent the last 15 years choosing that. Mm -hmm. And so for me, that's what um, gets me up every day. Yeah, that's awesome. And I love what you say too about your team. And, you know, I'm sure you feel such a great, um, like overwhelming sense of joy when you see someone that, you know, you, you found at, at the, the Publix or at the flight attendant start to grow and then pr- get promoted and move up and on your team. Absolutely. So, you know, one of my adjusters just got his insurance license. He had been working so hard at it um, and finally, finally passed the test. And it was hard. You know, it's a hard test if you're taking a PNC license test and your, your experience is all in work comp because most of those questions mm-hmm. are going to be to the other lines. And if you haven't worked in those other lines, you don't have anything yeah. to apply it to. Um, and so that was a great day and watching some of the others pass have been great days and then seeing the other things like, you know, for example, uh, I don't go to the the same church that he does, but when he was able to take that job, he's able to lead worship service at his church. He couldn't do that in his last job. And so seeing some of these people be able to reach out and do what they love in their own life, whether that's with their families, with their faith in their community, because they found that work-life balance that's a great feeling too, because you feel like, well, they now have the tools to make this world a little bit better in their own way. And so that when I think about things, that's the lens I try to think about things through is we have a great responsibility as leaders to um, try to make the world a little bit better and we can do it and we can do it and make money at the same time. Um, and, And that of course makes the corporation happy. And if there's our, if there's stockholders, they're happy. But I feel like when you do things the right way, it all, it all works out. Yeah. Yeah. One thing that uh, we always do like a community service outreach um, at, as a whole, as a firm, like at least once a month, but then over the last year, when there were less of those projects that were available, um, we all made a big push to take on just more pro bono cases and try to, you know, help out. We always did pro bono work, but there was more of a push to, okay, since you know, these community service projects that we would be hands-on aren't really happening right now. Let's figure out how we can help in another another way. Um, and, you know, 
I, I personally feel like there's nothing, I, I get such a good feeling out of helping someone who, you know, they, you know, for whatever reason, they don't have insurance, they, they get sued and they are in a rock between a rock and a hard place. And then you can get them out of a case or get it resolved for them. Um, and they're, you know, so thankful for, for the help, you know? Oh yeah. It's huge. So my, my family was a foster family growing up and my youngest brother is adopted. He was adopted when he was seven. And so when we, when my wife and I were first married, when this is probably, I don't know, 12 years ago, 14 years ago, maybe a little longer, uh, our next door neighbors had foster kids and they eventually, it's a long story, but they eventually adopted these kids and they, we had them over every day. In fact, we even took care of the infant for a few weeks when he was little and they didn't have any money. He worked at a Doritos factory. She ran a daycare in her house. I mean, they had nothing. And this attorney uh, did all the work for free for them. And those kids um, were adopted on Christmas day. And then I remember it now they're, some of them are teenagers, but thinking back on it, like what a gift they gave to this family and to those yeah. kids um, that needed somebody who was going to champion for them. Um, so I, I really appreciate that stuff. And, and I think there's so much, there's so many avenues. Everybody has their own skill set and brings something special that they can do. Mm-hmm. And if we all do that together, then really cool things happen. Yeah. I, and that, and that's such a heartwarming story too. Are you still close with the, the family? I, I am. It was, Good. it was very difficult. And, you know, I'm purposely leaving the drama out of that, like why they were there and all of that, because that's, that part's tough, but you know, it, my wife woke up with that baby and I did, you know, it was barely born, maybe three days old, you know, feeding him during the night for a month. And, you know, so then to know that he's with a family, you know, we would have loved it to be us, but I am so grateful it's them and that they yeah. love those kids and are taking care of them. And he's now 10. So he's, so it's been at least 10 years. And um, so those things matter. And, and the people who helped make that happen are, are special. Yeah. And, and you have a few kids of your own. So, I mean, Uh, just a couple, I have five. So I have five kids. I have two in high school, uh, one in middle school, one in intermediate school and one in elementary. So it is a busy life at the Hamlin house. Yes. I can imagine your weekends are like, you probably have to map out where everyone needs to be at different times. I can't even imagine. Every, every morning we have to map out what's happening tonight. So I know like today it's like one kid's at the orthodontist, one has singing lessons, two of them have swim lessons. And I'm like, I don't know how we're doing all that, but we'll figure it out. Uh, yeah, I, I'm just curious because a, a friend of mine has, uh, she's three and she has a rule too that oh, there's they're only allowed one activity a season because she's like, I can't, I just physically can't handle it. So I imagine you probably do something similar. Yeah, we, we, we've gone both ways. What we've tried to do now with COVID really limiting what they can do is we try to get them in anything we can just so that they're out doing stuff because it's hard to be a 14 year old or a 16 year old if you don't have a support system that friends are yeah. so important at that age. Yeah. Oh yeah. So we're doing what we can to facilitate that, but it also means that life is very busy. So, <laughs> so, and I have a wife that's a saint. So she's, she has her degree in teaching, but um, she's spent that degree teaching our kids the last, you know, however long uh, we've been married. Yeah. Uh, so our oldest is 16. So the last 16 years anyway. Wow. That's great. See, so, and, and yeah, that's why she, you could have, she mo- wanted to move. She's a saint. <laughs> she is. She really is. So 
Yeah, I'm God lucky bless her. every day. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, so I met her, we met in, uh, as camp counselors when we were both in college. And I knew after the first week, if I, if, if she'd, if she'd marry me, that was the person. And we were engaged by the end of the summer and married in December. So wow. it was fast. So we knew each other six months when we got married and we were babies and we've grown up together. So uh, she's a huge support and anything I do that's amazing, uh, has a, has a lot to do with her. I love that, but I'm curious when you came home at the end of that summer and, or when you told your parents that you were going to get engaged, how was that? embraced? Uh, so, so my parents were fine with it. Um, and her parents were too, but where it was a little awkward. I remember when I went over to their house, the first time I met her father, when I answered the door, he said, my yard needs to be mowed and you look like you'd be good at mowing. And he literally took me out to the shed, got the mower out, and I mowed the front and backyard before I ever even got inside the house for dinner that night. And uh, then she had applied to transfer from Purdue to Indiana uh, at the time. And so while we're having dinner, he said, so Molly, the reason you're transferring schools, that's because of him? (laughs) And I'm like sitting right there going, oh my gosh, my head's going to explode. I'm so nervous. But uh, they're amazing in-laws and they were very supportive and um, they knew we had similar goals and we wanted the same things in life. And um, so I'm grateful for that. And we'll be married 18 years coming up this December. So, so far, so good. Yeah. Good for you. I, that must've been nerve wracking though. The first, I mean, and that was, was that the first time you met him too? That was the first time I met him. Oh, first God. time was that. And then, and then when I asked if I asked for his permission to marry her, my wife said he loves pie. He grew up near the Amish. He wasn't Amish, but he grew up in a, a community that was predominantly Mennonite and Amish. So he loved like pies. And so she said, bring a pie and tell them that you want to talk to them over pie. So I did that. And uh, somewhere there's a picture of that. So I think if I hadn't brought the pie, maybe the answer would have been no. So I yeah. Brought- oh, I love that. I love stories like that. They just make, yeah. they gave me all warm inside. Yeah. <laughs> so um, we're just about out of time, but I'm curious to close things up a little bit here. And this is kind of a bigger question, but sitting where you are today, you know, what can you, can you recall like the best piece of advice that you've received either from a family member or a mentor, um, or even, you know, your wife? <laughs> I think of a couple things. Um, you know, so I, on my glasses. So when I was a missionary, I had a mission president who, when I was on the Navajo reservation, who was an amazing man. In fact, he was an insurance weird enough, uh, sales. So nothing to do with what I'm doing, but he had said, he wrote on the board one time, ATPM, or always think in a positive manner. And my first day on the job as an adjuster, I wrote it on a sticky note and I stepped, stuck it to my desk. And now, you know, I get my glasses from Zenny and you can put anything you want on the side. And so my glasses always on the side say ATPM to remember to always think in a positive manner. And I really think the way we frame things has a lot to do with where we end up. And so, um, you know, I've had a lot of different challenges in my career and my personal life. But in each of those, what I try to do is to remember to always think in a positive manner. And um, when things get tough, I just keep going back to that. And I love that. And I can feel it from you though. I mean, I feel like you're the guy that people go to, to when, when they're in a bad place or they need advice or they just, they need help turning it around. 
I appreciate that. I appreciate <laughs> that. It's, I've tried so hard. Hopefully it's becoming who I am. So it's something that I, I believe like deep in my core that the way we think about things changes who we are and, you know, our thoughts lead to our actions and our actions eventually end up to be who we are. So if we try to control those, which is hard, I think controlling your thoughts is probably the hardest thing you could ever do. And I'm an anxious person by nature. So I go through lots of practice and I've read books on cognitive behavioral therapy and I've done all kinds of things to think about how I can better do that. Um, but I think um, that's a big one. And I think in claims, it's a big one. I, I think you could use that advice in any career, any marriage, any relationship yeah. is just to try to remember to think about things in a positive way. And when you start to feel those things to um, try to reset. Yeah, I love that. So. I, I, that's, I think that that's a great piece of advice. I think I'm going to take that piece of advice to myself. And I love that you put it on your glasses too. Well, I keep it right. I would say I keep it right by my brain. I yeah. will, <laughs> forget. So, uh, and I need to be reminded. So, uh, and of course, you know, with five kids, you have moments too and, and, right. and jobs and all those things. You have moments where you're like, oh my gosh, what is going on? In fact, I was yeah. telling my, uh, team just this afternoon, if you've seen that old movie, the never ending story, um, this is like a, a I guess you would have had to grow up in the eighties to have, have seen it, but there's this part where he's pulling his horse through the swamps of sorrow and his horse ends up getting sucked in by the swamp. Cause it's just too sad. And I just think about like in life, like if you don't work at it, that's what can happen. You just have to work at yeah. it every day. Yeah. Yeah. Cause and it's so true. Cause you can get so sucked into the negativity and always only seeing the bad things around you versus, you know, the, the positive things. And the, and if you only see the negatives and it's just, you dig yourself for, further down. Yeah. And I just learned to turn, turn off and tune out of the stuff that's not going to help me um, mm -hmm. because there's enough of that out there. And, you know, great example, our house was hit by a tornado yeah. that pulled through. And I'll tell you like that weekend, we had 20 people over here from all over the place, helping me cut down trees, helping me clean up debris, you know, pulling pieces of people's houses out of my yard and there's just so many good people, people bringing lunch over while we were doing that. And I felt like there's a lot of good, but it's easy to focus on the stuff that's not good. And so yeah. you just have to work at it. Doesn't mean you ignore it, but you know, what we focus on, we enlarge and empower. That's something Becky Curtis said in one of my interviews and yeah. on the podcast. And I, I think that's really true. Yeah. Well, I, that's awesome. And, and I'm so happy that you have such a great neighborhood and group around you to help kind of band together and help each other. Cause I'm sure for you and your neighbors, that was just a horrific experience. It was crazy. It was yeah. really <laughs> crazy. We feel lucky in that we're like two houses away from people who lost their houses altogether. It passed yeah. right, right past our backyard. Um, so we'll need a new fence and roof and a number of other things, but uh, we at least have a house to live in where some people right. behind us don't. So. Right. Yeah. Well, Thank you so much for coming on. I, I, I love, I love talking to you and I I just, you, I bring a smile to my face, with your positive attitude, <laughs> but well, let thanks, the, Megan. you're welcome. So let the listeners know where they can find you and where they can get, uh, listening on adjusted. Absolutely. So you can find us on all the major apps for podcasts. Um, the title's adjusted. We have a, a blog that actually, uh, is posted on the opposite week. So it releases every other week on Monday. And on the off weeks that it's not releasing, we have a blog that will be post that's posted on our website, and that's Burke in Comp, so B-E-R-K-I-N-D-C-O-M-P dot com. 
And if you go to our company's website and you click on blog, you'll find it there. And there's nice little summaries and, and tips and some fun facts about me on some of those too. Oh, so. well, good. <laughs> go check that out. Yeah. <laughs> and so, and for our listeners, thanks again for tuning in. And if you like what you hear as to the Defense Never Rest as well, please give us a like. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and on YouTube under the Legal Navigator. Mm-hmm.